as we jump into this, um, you need to know we started a new section as we're working our way through Exodus um, into this, this section of the book called the Book of the Law. And it's a very defined little unit um, where, where God is giving these, these extra set of, of laws. He's just given them the Ten Commandments, which is the, the pinnacle. We're all familiar with this kind of, it's like the, um, uh, oh, what's the word I want? Um, the United States has their constitution. There we go. Um, th- that was the, the pinnacle of the law, and everything else flows out from that. Um, and that's what these laws are, these specific laws to help show how the Ten Commandments then are to be worked out. How does this show up in real life? And so the book of the law is like case law. It gives examples of how it was to be applied, and the judges were to look at this and kind of extrapolate into other scenarios. This is how to apply God's law. And we're going to spend about six weeks total looking at this book of the law, these commands here, um, not all in a row. Um, next week, I'm going to be gone again. Last time for a long time, I promise. I'm sorry. It's been a bit of a chaotic summer. Um, but uh, I'll be gone next week. A friend of mine will be here preaching. And, and then w- when it comes to September 15th, that's our launch Sunday. We kind of kick off the new ministry here. Um, we're going to take a break from Exodus, and we're going to jump into Philippians. And uh, we're going to spend about five weeks there. Um, we've been kind of digging through that um, and uh, think, what does God have for us in Philippians? I think that's going to be a great place for us to be. Um, that five weeks uh, won't do all of Philippians. That'll get us through chapter one. Um, and over the next few months, we'll, we'll kind of come and go in blocks. We'll spend some time in Exodus. We'll spend some time uh, in Philippians. And I think it'd be good for us to get a little New Testament back into our, into our diet. Um, but that's going to be a great place for us to start off our ministry year. So September 15th, make that a priority. We'll start that new series, kind of set the tone for that. And uh, boy, if you have friends that are maybe interested in church or are willing to be dragged to church, that's a good Sunday. Come and just see what it's all about. Come and see what we do. And, uh, and, and that should be just a, a celebration uh, and a great Sunday. Um, but let's, uh, let's turn our attention to Exodus and the book of the covenant here. Um, You've heard the phrase, uh, often attributed to Gandhi, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth makes the whole world blind, right? Um, seems like a pretty wise statement, pretty enlightened statement. That's the kind of people we want to be, right? Tolerant and, and patient. Eye for an eye seems horrible, barbaric, outdated. Like who would, who would live by that? Um, kids, when your sibling hits you, has your mom ever said, okay, now you get to punch them? Is that how your parents, I hope, maybe I'm going to get some parents in trouble here. Um, not usually. Maybe there's some strange scenario, but, but not usually. That's not right. That's, that's not the way we do things. I've heard Christians quote Gandhi on this. It seems like a good idea. Eye for an eye. That's a horrible thing. What kind of society would operate in this crude, vindictive manner? Well, did you know that's a biblical law? Did you know that's a law that God gave to Israel? Right here on Mount Sinai through Moses. And a law that I think actually in its specific context hits us pretty directly, hits us pretty condemningly. And so I want to take a look at that pretty closely this morning. Um, turn with me to Exodus 21, um, verse 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, just throw up your hand if you didn't get one here a second ago. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap in front of you. Um, this is what it's all about. I, I have nothing to say. Uh, so it's, it's all about just looking at what God's Word says. And if you don't have a Bible uh, at home, you don't have one that you can read easily, take one of these. There's more at the back. Um, we want you to have it. Um, we're happy to see those walk out of here. Um, we left off looking at these laws about slavery, laws about murder, um, laws that demand the death penalty, and, uh, and, and seeing a lot of the goodness of God in it. Um, and yet we, we have to admit as we look at these laws, this isn't the world we live in, so we kind of have to wrestle through this. Um, this is tricky stuff. This week we come to these laws that deal with kind of short-term and long-term injury. How do you fairly judge between different people, different situations, different injuries are involved 
And uh, let's just take this one piece at a time and, and walk through it. Let me read uh, verses 18 and 19 of Exodus 21. It says, When men quarrel, and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. All right, it's pretty straightforward so far. Uh, it seems pretty simple. Two men are fighting. One strikes another man. Uh, it says with a stone or with his fist. And stone there is just kind of speaks of any, any weapon. So with a weapon, without a weapon, he strikes a man. And, and this law is what happens when he does not die. The reason being, we, we just looked at verse 12, what happens if he does die? Um, if he does die, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. It's murder. And the death penalty uh, is the punishment. But if he strikes a man so that he does not die, but he takes to his bed. So he's, maybe it's a head injury. Maybe it's a broken leg, a broken rib. He's, he's, he's laid out for a while. He's not working. But notice also it's not permanent injury. Because uh, he rises again. He walks outdoors with his staff. And, and that doesn't mean like using it like a cane or crutches. Walking with a staff and you're, you're healthy. You're going for a long walk. That's full recovery. So the man struck him then would not be put to death. But he would pay. He would pay for the loss of his time until he was fully healed. Again, very logical Law, you pay him his lost wages or provide him the, the crops that he lost not being able to work on his farm. And, and again, these laws were for the judges to look at and, and they would make their, their decision of what was fair to pay. And, and this was kind of the general principle. Verses 20 and 21 then take this same scenario into a new context. Um, look with me at, uh, at these two verses. When a man strikes his slave male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So the question then is, what if it's a slave? Same thing happens, but now between slave and master. Now, slavery. Whoa, what do we do with this? Well, we talked about it at length Last week, I don't want to rehash all of that, but you have to understand when you see slave in the Old Testament, um, it means something radically different than what we mean by it today. We say slavery, we think of, of slavery in the South 200 years ago that was wicked and evil and, and has nothing to do with slavery as God defines it for Israel. Now, those kinds of things happened back then, but that's not what God is talking about. Um, he defines a slave very clearly and how they were to do it. A slave was a slave to pay off a debt that he couldn't pay. He would sell himself voluntarily to pay off that debt. And it was a six-year term, no more, not lifetime servitude. If you were to kidnap someone and make them your slave, like the entire slave industry of the West, um, you were to be put to death. So totally different ballgame. Wow. Slaves were brought into the family. They celebrated the feasts and the festivals together with the family. Um, if a slave ran away, this is in uh, Deuteronomy, I believe. I didn't write down the passage. If a slave ran away, he wasn't to be returned to his master. The assumption was uh, he's being treated poorly, and that's why he ran away. And so you're to care for him and keep him. Um, very different, very different ballgame than what we saw in the West. Um, so this law says... If a man strikes his slave with a rod, and again, this seems brutal to us, um, but the reason it uses rod here uh, is very specific. The rod was used of, of discipline. It's, it's a very particular word. It's not just that he hit him with a stick. Um, this is discipline. You guys keeping up? The rod To strike with the rod was discipline. Uh, and that was normal in that day for, for slaves, for, for children. That's how they disciplined but that doesn't mean you could just do anything to your slave. There's very clear parameters here. If your slave died because of your supposed discipline, that was a huge deal. End of verse 20, it says he's to be avenged. Well, how do we interpret that? What does it mean to be avenged? Well, I think it can only be understood as pointing back to verse 12. Whoever strikes a man, 
It doesn't say a slave or a master or a rich man or a poor man. So that he dies shall be put to death. So if you killed your slave, it was murder. And you were to face the death penalty. But verse 21, if he survives a day or two. Now, the the translation here is tricky. Um, The word survives, it shows up in the ESV there. Uh, It literally means to stand up or to rise. And and it's not totally clear uh, how that word relates to the the, the one or two days. The, the, The grammar there is not clear. So if you read the ESV, NASB, or King James in a straightforward way, it seems to say, um, if you strike your slave and he survives a day or two, and, and it seems to me like, I, I, my assumption, he survives a day or two and then dies, that he's not to be avenged. And that's not an unreasonable translation, but I think the NIV uh, helps us out here. So, so if you understand translation theory a little bit, um, the NIV seeks to interpret a little bit more. The, the NASB, the ESV, um, they, they seek to be more formal, word for word. We just want to tell you the words that are there and you figure it out. And, and I appreciate that. I think that's the right way to go. Um, the NIV tries to explain the words a little more and the way it interprets it. Sometimes that's really helpful. Sometimes it's misleading. Here I think it's helpful. The NIV says that they're not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two. So he rises after the day or two. It's not that the slave survives a day or two and then dies, but that he's, he's bedridden for a day or two and then gets up. And, and I think that's the logical interpretation because it's a parallel to verses 18 and 19. That's what we just saw with the two free men fighting. The one is knocked down but doesn't die. He rises up again. Here's what to do. And then verses 20 and 21 are the same scenario just with a slave. So that's the way I, I take it. And the punishment in that situation, you've, you've, you've struck your slave with a rod and he's been not died, but he's knocked down for a few days and you pay him nothing for his lost time. Why is that? Well, because the slave is his money. And that seems like a horrible thing to say to our ears, but just think about the context. Um, he's paying off a debt. The slave is, is working off what he owes to the master. And so his lost time, the master only has him for six years. If, his, if he loses a year of that, he's lost that money. The, the, the master's already paid his debt in that way. Um, it's his loss that the slave is hurt. So he doesn't pay for the lost time. He, he's, he's paying it um, already. And the question arises then, at least in my mind, so can a slave over then, a slave owner just do anything to his slave? As long as he doesn't die from it, it doesn't cost him anything other than lost time. Now we need to be honest with the text here. Um, this does allow for more than we might be comfortable with more than would be legal in our society. You, you can't do that to another person. This passage under the law of Moses allows for physical discipline of, of slaves, very different cultural context. Um, the application of the rod, that, that makes us uncomfortable to say the least. Uh, but there were limits. Again, if you killed your slave, you're put to death for it. So you don't want to go anywhere near that. But that's not the only limit. I want to just jump down a little bit and look at verses 23 to 25 because I think they apply to this. This this is the famous lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let me read what it says, verse 23 to 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, Burn for a burn, wound for a wound, stripe for a stripe. Again, that sounds awful. Is that really how the people of Israel operated? You hit me, I hit you. You break my arm, I break your arm. You cut off my hand, I cut off your hand. I don't think we want to live in that kind of world. But neither did they. And Gandhi was right, maybe in his misunderstanding, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. That's not a good thing. Um, But let's think about the reality of this. Left to our own devices, in our own 
human instincts, is that the way we operate? I think Gandhi would say, man is essentially good. And given the right situation and circumstances, we could all kind of attain to this higher potential and this whole, this whole level of judgment would be done away with and, and, and we just need to be kind and forgiving. But the Bible has a very different perspective on humanity. That we're sinners. That we're fallen. That we're twisted by our very nature, by the sin in us. The Bible teaches that we are sinful from birth. Kids, tell me if this sounds familiar. Your brother or sister said something to you that kind of bothered you. So you said something to them that was a little bit mean. They said something to you that was really mean, and so then you got angry and yelled at them, so they got angry and pushed you, and you got angrier and hit them. Has that ever happened in your home? Parents, have you ever seen that happen? Yeah, sorry, kids, cat's out of the bag. Um, Right? We escalate. We want justice and we want him to pay more than what he's offended me. You break my finger, I'm going to break your arm. You break my arm, I'm going to break your leg. You break my leg, I'm going to kill you. We retaliate personally, vindictively, and we escalate. It happens all the time. This law was not meant to be enforced from one individual to another. This is not you hit me, I hit you. We go back to Exodus 18. Moses was judging the people of Israel. Remember that? Jethro showed up and said, Moses, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. Um, You need help. And so he brought in other judges to rule over groups of 50 and 100 and 1,000. This is the system they're working under. There There are judges meeting out proper discipline. You take your grievance to the judge and they would decide what was appropriate. And the eye for an eye law was there to keep it from escalating. To say you can't demand more justice than the offense. Eye for an eye meant the punishment must fit the crime. It limits the punishment. This isn't saying you have to take an eye for an eye. It's saying that's the max. That's as far as we go. Furthermore, it wasn't applied literally. As far as I see throughout Scripture, this is, this is applied um, more metaphorically. It, it wasn't literally an eye for an eye, but, but it was fair punishment and, and often financially paid uh, to the injured person for the value of an eye. And, and that's exactly what we see as, as it's laid out here. He takes this concept of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And then verses 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. This was a generous application of that law to protect slaves. Yes, you, you could punish your slave with the rod, probably applied across the back for severe offenses. But if you went too far, if you knocked out his tooth, if you damaged an eye, if you did permanent injury, he went free. Again, the judges are involved here. If you had one day left before your six years were up, you're not just going to be set free. They're going to work that out. But this is the general principle. And it was a generous principle. So when Jesus quotes this in Matthew 5, and he says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn him to the left also. He's not saying don't have a legal system in your society. He's not saying don't have justice. He's rebuking them for misuse of this law. He's pushing back against them for, for sinfully, personally applying this retaliation and vengeance. Partly because that's just never what it was meant to teach in the first place. That's a lot of work, trying to understand what these laws meant to them, how this applied all those years ago. What does this mean for us? How do we take this and, and walk away with something meaningful? What do we learn from this? Well, how about this truth? All people matter. 
All people matter. The fact that these laws are even here is hugely significant. We have a few different historical law codes that we can look at. Um, One of the most famous and well-known is Hammurabi's Code. It's a famous law code from uh, about 300 years before um, Moses wrote these laws. Um, And and they were written in Babylon. It has a lot of laws regarding slaves, all kinds of laws about what to do with slaves and how uh, slaves are to be dealt with. But according to Hammurabi, um, the slave was not a person. It was, it was merchandise. If you hurt a slave, you pay the master. It's his loss. It's his property. There are no laws about what a master can or can't do with his slave. It's not there because it's his slave. He can do whatever he wants with it. Not God's law. God cares about slaves and masters equally. If you kill someone... Slave or free, it matters not. You will be put to death. If you injure someone, um, you'll need to make restitution. It doesn't matter if you are uh, their owner as master or not. You have to make it right. Why? Because God's law is founded on a principle of basic human value. It was a principle that, that Babylon just didn't have. They didn't have a, an intrinsic value to human life. Verse 12 calls for the death penalty. It doesn't come out of the blue. The death penalty was to be put on, was there to put on display the great value of human life. It was given first in Genesis 9:6 to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That's huge. It gives us not only the law itself, but the reason for it. The reason murder is so serious, the reason it gets the death penalty is because because human life has great value. It goes back to again to, to Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. In his own image. He took the reflection of himself and put it on us. That's why we don't value the life of a dog the same way we value a life of a human. Our human value comes from the image of God in us. That's huge. So to destroy a human life, any human life, it has nothing to do with their their place in society their status in this world, their race, their wealth or influence. If you kill someone, you've destroyed an image bearer of the Creator. God cares about slaves and masters equally. Now we'd like to believe that we're long done with slavery in the Western world and, and that racism is long gone. We might look at the racism that still exists in the States and, and say, but as Canadians, we're better than that. We don't, we don't do that anymore. I'd like to think we're maybe a little more ahead of them in that, but is it gone? I hear a lot of talk about our Native American population or people that move here from the Middle East. And sure, there, there are cultural differences that we can talk about. There are things that we can say that that culture um, is misled on that. That's not a helpful value. But it's so easy to slip into thinking these are lesser people because of it. They're just slightly less value. But notice the issue between Hammurabi and God's law isn't race at all. It's, it's social status. And we do this without even thinking about it. I'm sure we've all had this conversation with our kids. Kids, you've had this conversation with your parents. Why, why did you say that mean thing to the boy at the park? Why did you treat him like that? Why did you say that he, that he smelled bad? Well, he did smell bad. But that wasn't kind. But it was true. 
He did smell bad. He was funny looking. He was awkwardly dressed. He did talk weird. What are we saying? It's okay to be mean to him because he's lesser than me. Because he's different from me. So I can put him down a notch and treat him as lesser than me. As grown-ups, we do this with cultural differences, economic differences, social differences. Wake up in the morning, flip open your phone to the news app, and you scroll through and you see five murders happen last night. It's terrible, tragic. You click on the headline, you begin to read, and, and you feel a sense of relief when you learn that it was five homeless people that were killed, drug addicts. Why is that? Why do we do that? And you might try to defend your feeling on some highbrow societal impact argument, but isn't it possible that we feel relieved because we just kind of think homeless people are simply less than us? There's less human value there. The life of the drug addict is less precious in your eyes than the life of a I don't know, bank teller. God doesn't see those deaths as any less tragic. Those lives as any less precious. Think carefully about how you treat people that are different from you. How we interact with those that might be seen as a lower social status than us. You see, human value is rooted back in the fact that every single human, just like you, has this intrinsic value because they're created in the image of God. Now, with that in mind, let's, let's go back to the verses I skipped over. And this is where I think this passage gets real sharp for us today. And I promise you I'm not just trying to get political. This is not something... Uh, uh, run as a hobby horse, but I want to be faithful to this text and how it speaks to our culture, and I just don't think we can avoid this. As we look at these verses, we see here that all human life has value. Look at um, these uh, verses 22 to 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, But there is no harm. Then the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So it's the same format. Two men are fighting and a pregnant woman is somehow hit in the chaos and it causes her to give birth prematurely or it hurts the baby. If there's no harm to the baby, um, there's still to be a fine imposed between the husband and the judges. They come to an appropriate fine. But if there's harm, if the baby is hurt or killed, then you shall pay life for a life eye for an eye, and so on. Simple but vital truth wrapped up in this law is that baby in the womb is given full human rights and protection. I don't know if you know this, but Canada, where we vote, where we have input, where we have some responsibility in the laws that are made, is one of, if not the most pro-abortion country in the world. We're leading the way. There are four countries in the world where a woman can kill the baby in her womb even after it's considered viable for no reason or any reason. China, North Korea, United States, and Canada. There's a short history on our own country. Many of you remember the Henry Morgenthaler case. 1973, he claimed to have performed 5,000 abortions without oversight, unregulated. He even filmed himself in the act. He was in and out of the courts until 1988. The Supreme Court made this absolutely catastrophic ruling. Forcing a woman 
by threat of criminal sanction to carry a fetus, notice they refuse to say baby, to carry a fetus to term unless she meets certain criteria unrelated to her own priorities and aspirations is unconstitutional. So any reason that doesn't jive with her own priorities and aspirations, she can't be forced to carry the baby to term. If she doesn't want the baby, she can kill it. The law will not protect it. And shockingly, that ruling in 1988 said the abortion laws that we have are unconstitutional and just nothing has come to replace them. And so to this day, Canada just has no abortion laws. It's treated like any other medical procedure, the removal of a mole, the removal of a kidney stone, the removal of a baby, covered by our tax dollars. 2017, 94,030 babies were killed in our country. One year. In the 10 years from 2007 to 2017, 1,083,480 abortions were reported in Canada. And that's overlooking the 20 years of legal abortion before that. Millions and millions of children in our supposedly peaceful country. And if you're wondering, those those stats come from the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. That's not some pro-life group. This is a tragedy on parallel levels. The United States, obviously a larger population, over 23,000 babies are aborted every week. That is more than, than double the population of olds every week. How does this go on? 65 million babies in the last 45 years, that's almost double the population of Canada has been wiped out before it was even born. In some places like Washington, D.C., more babies are killed every year in the womb than are born alive. We talk about Hitler and Nazis in Germany. It's heralded as the, 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 one of the most evil regimes ever to been in power, and absolutely it was. They killed over six million Jews, and, and I'm not saying that wasn't wicked, but, but we've surpassed that by ten times, and we do it proudly. And we do it playing the same linguistic games that, that they did. There was a term used by the Nazis, my German's not great, Lebens und Würzenlebens. Life unworthy of life. It was just a title that was slapped on to Jews, to the handicapped, to the mentally ill. Yes, it's life in some form, but it's not worthy of life. They have no rights. And they swallowed it as a society. Some embraced it, some turned a blind eye, some hated it, but sat quietly by as it happened. And six million lives were taken. And that's how we talk about babies in the womb. In fact, we don't talk about babies in the womb. We talk about fetuses. We don't talk about murdering babies. We talk about terminating pregnancies. In fact, far more likely, we talk about a woman's right to choose. It's her body. And as the Supreme Court ruled, you can't tell her what to do with her body. And yet, don't all laws essentially tell us what to do with our body? If you can't tell me what to do with my body, then then why do I not have the right to put my fist where I want it? It's my body, but as soon as my body begins to come in contact with someone else's body, the law gets involved. I can't use my body to steal, to kill, to abuse, to drive drunk. That's what laws do. They protect people. They keep us from hurting one another, specifically those most vulnerable. No one asks about the body of the child. Does he not have a right to life that trumps your right to want to take his life? And no mistake, it is a life. The Bible defines it that way. 
David says, Psalm 139, 13, For you formed me, you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. David says, that was me in there, a person. The Bible consistently uses the word baby for a child in a mother's womb. Not some special word for a potential person. It's a baby. And even science agrees that life starts in the womb. It's all over the place. Diana Irving is a biochemist and biologist. She teaches at Georgetown University. She puts it very simply. At fertilization, a change occurs from a simple part of one human being and a simple part of another human being, that being the egg and the sperm, which simply possess human life to a new, genetically unique, newly existing individual, whole living human being. That is, upon fertilization, parts of human beings have actually been transformed into something very different from what they were before. They have changed into a single whole human being. It's not part of the mother's body. It is a new, unique human being. It might not look like much at that moment, but it's not the mother anymore. And it's not the father anymore. It's a new, genetically unique human with its own DNA. Its life has begun. Science textbook, um, The Developing Human, critically, sorry, Clinically Oriented Embryology, 8th edition. Um, this is a textbook used at McGill University, at Purdue University, and others. Um, there are a few newer editions. I, I don't know what they say, but the 8th edition uh, is not that old. And it says, human development begins at fertilization. The male gamete unites with the female gamete to form a single cell, a zygote, and this highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. Every single one of us was at one point an embryo. And every embryo, if continues on in healthy development, will become a fully mature human. It's not something other than a person that might one day become a person. It is a person. At 18 days... The heart begins to beat. At 21 days, it has its own blood type, its own blood pumping through its veins. At just 28 days, its eyes and ears and respiratory system are forming. At 42 days, brain waves and reflexes are recorded. At seven weeks, there are images of babies in the womb sucking their thumb. At eight weeks, all biological systems are present. By nine weeks before many women even know they're pregnant, the baby can squint, swallow, move its tongue, make a fist. At 15 weeks, it has all its taste buds. By 17 weeks, it dreams in the womb. By 28 weeks, it weighs a pound, is a foot long, and can recognize its mother's voice. And by 24 weeks, now more than half of babies survive premature birth. It's a life. It's a human person. Vulnerable, yes, but human. Here's the problem. Let's get a little bit philosophical for a moment. Our society has been influenced by a line of thinking called functionalism. The basis of functionalism is that, that personhood, human value, is based on your function, what you can accomplish. Things like self-awareness, awareness of the future, ability to communicate and live independently, and from that perspective, the baby in the womb, it has no personhood. It has no value. It, it doesn't function. It has no rights. One of the leading thinkers in this movement uh, is a man named Peter Singer. He teaches bioethics at Princeton University. So you want to talk about an influential man. He is teaching ethics teachers that are going out to the universities. He writes this. This is 1979. This has been around. In his book, Practical Ethics, he says, Human babies are not born self-aware or cap capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. And therefore, the life of a newborn has less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. I'm not making this up. 
And you heard me right. He, he's not talking about a fetus in the womb. He's talking about a baby out of the womb. He's talking about a months old infant and saying that that baby has no value. He openly advocates not only for abortion, but for the, the right to kill infants, the mentally ill, the elderly, because their worth, their personhood is based on their function. That's not how God sees it. It's not how the Bible presents humanity and human value. You're not valued based on what you can do, but what you are. Back to Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Every individual human, young or old, slave or free, handicapped or otherwise, from the moment of conception on, is alike created with this stamp, with the, with the image of God. It has this intrinsic value. It's precious. We don't have the right to take life. Not at the beginning, not at the end. It's God who gives, it's God who takes. It's not our place. Life is precious. And in fact, you'll notice in this passage, there's something significant and unique here. This law actually differs from the previous ones. Looking back at verses 12 and 13, if a, if a man strikes another man so that he dies, it's murder he's to, put to be put to death. Verse 13, if he didn't lay in wait for him, if it wasn't intentional, if he wasn't trying to kill the man, then he's let off. He's not held guilty of murder. The Bible does not put the, man, the, the death penalty on for, for manslaughter or accidental death. But in this case... Two men are fighting, accidentally hit a pregnant woman and cause harm or death to the baby he is to pay. Life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The law of God puts a higher value on that life in the womb because it's more vulnerable. It requires greater protection. They, they should have been more aware of what was around them. See, secular ethics tends to ask the question, what are my rights? What can I demand of other people? Biblical ethics flips that around and asks, what are my responsibilities? What do I owe to God? What do I owe to the people around me? And so killing of, a, of an unborn child is not only murder, it's murder of one that we should have protected to whom we should have had the utmost care and concern and protection. Now I get there are a thousand different situations and, and, and theoretical possibilities that people say, what about this scenario? What about that scenario? And, and what about this argument? And, and I don't in any way want to diminish the fact that there are just gut-wrenching, heart-breaking situations of, of, of rape and, and incest and, and horrible things that are painful and troublesome that's not an easy place to be. But if that baby from the moment of conception is its own human life, not one of those changes its value. Not one. What do we owe to this human life created in the image of God of unimaginable worth? So what do we do? Church, what do we do? As Christians living in the middle of this tragedy around us, Well, Matthew 5, Jesus calls us to be salt and light in a broken world. Salt is used to slow the process of decay. Hold off corruption. Light shines forth the truth. It shows evil for what it is. 
Church, we need to be convinced of this in our own minds. About the biblical value of life. We need to speak loud and clear on this issue. We cannot be silent. We can't see this this wave of popular opinion and just sit back and say, what is one person? How will I make a difference? What does it matter in all of this? Could you imagine having been one of those in Nazi Germany who had just stood quietly and then seeing the concentration camps uncovered? We need to speak. Maybe for some of you that means I need to volunteer at the Pregnancy Care Center. I need to find a way to, to impact this tragedy in a very real way. Maybe you need to think about opening your home to adopting a child that would otherwise have been aborted. But at the very least, we cannot be silent. We have to speak of evil as evil and shine the light of the truth. We must be salt and light. But let's remember in that we are also to be the voice of hope. Maybe for some of you here this morning, this is painful. Maybe you've gone through an abortion or have encouraged someone to do so. Maybe this issue touches you in a way that is very personal and real and painful. Church, we need to remember that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. That's what this whole thing is about, right? That we all deserve death because of our rebellion against God. Praise the Lord, we have a great Savior who wipes away even the greatest of sins. Our message to to the culture is, this is wicked, this is evil, this cannot continue. And our message to the individual is, There is a God who loves you. There is grace. Repent. Come and see the forgiveness and the washing of guilt that Jesus offers. 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We, We don't speak to the world from a place of moral superiority. We speak as sinners to sinners. We say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we need. Even abortion in Christ can be forgiven. Your guilt removed as far as the east is from the west. Are we a people who are lovingly offering that hope to a broken world? to reach out to the confused, the deceived, the hurting, and the broken with love and gentleness, with a hope that is only found in Jesus. And knowing that hope in Jesus is our only ultimate hope. It's the only world, or the only way this world is ultimately changed. And so there's one last thing that we can do that we're called to do as we wait for our king to return to one day set things right, and that is to pray. And we are commanded in 1 Timothy to pray for all those in high position that we might lead a quiet, peaceful life. So I want to just close here praying for our country praying for our leaders, our politicians. Um, Would you join me in that? Father, our hearts are broken. Thinking about the reality of this tragedy that happens around us every day. Oh God, forgive us. Lord, have mercy on this nation. We are a people of unsurpassed evil. And a people who have far too quickly turned a blind eye, sat quiet. 
because it's not popular. It's not safe. Lord, help us to speak. Help us to know with wisdom how to be salt and light in a wicked and corrupt generation. And help us to hold forth the hope that is in Christ. Lord, we pray for the leaders that are in place. God, we know that nobody holds a position of authority except that you have ordained it. And that they will be held responsible for their decisions. God, we ask that you would be at work. That you would save those leaders. Lord, we pray for Jason Kenny in Alberta here. God, that you would give him boldness. That he would be a man of conviction. God, that even this morning, you would stir in his heart a righteous anger. Lord, I pray for Justin Trudeau. God, we've seen his bold statements in favor of abortion. Lord, would you convict him? Would you show him your truth? Would you transform his heart? God, that he would, that he would radically change and lead this country in a different direction. Lord, we pray for the upcoming election. Lord, that the people of this nation would see this tragedy in a new light, would see the ability to stand in an election and change it. That our voices would be loud. God, that you would keep us from adding to the guilt of our nation. Lord, that you would protect the countless infants that would be affected by this. Help us, Father. Help us to know how to walk in wisdom through this, how to speak clearly with boldness and yet with love and grace. God, we again are just so grateful that you are a God of grace that you have not wiped this nation from the face of the earth, that you have not wiped each of us. God, we all deserve it. We know. And we come to you as sinners needing our own salvation in Christ. And we thank you that we find grace at the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.